Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Hello, we are back. And today we're talking about being yoked. We don't usually timestamp these episodes at all, so you can kind of listen to them whenever you want. But I think for the for the sake of history here, um, we probably should also say that we are in quarantine in 2020 in the United States of America. We are, we are taking part in that with you. So I hope that um, we can just keep talking about theology and stuff during this time. And yeah, so... Hope your quarantine is going well. <laughs> it's like it's just so so weirdly bleak. I just don't even know how to how to move on from that. But go ahead. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how to move on either. Um, I just felt like we should say something. It's weird to not say something, don't you think? Yeah, uh, we can do it. We got this. We can do this. You got this. And we're providing some content, free content. So here you go, something to get you through the quarantine. Okay, we got a couple questions about being yoked, being unequally yoked. Should we uh, read one and play one? Yep, let's do it. All right, the first one comes from a listener named Christopher. Hi, Nate and Tim. It's Christopher from Ambali, Uganda. I have a question about 2 Corinthians 6.14. Is it a sin or against God's will to marry an unbeliever? Yeah, thanks, Christopher. And we also got an email uh, from someone named Anson uh, with a similar question, but coming at a slightly different angle. Anson said, I would love it if you guys did an episode on the controversial, equally yoked passage in 2 Corinthians. Many people directly apply it to marriage and the implied command not to marry outside of your faith, when I've heard that the context might apply more to false teaching in the church. What does it mean? What is the context? Does it really mean what everyone assumes it means? Or is there some misconstruing afoot? Yeah, this is awesome. These kind of feel uh, in keeping with like the LGBTQ series we did and talking about like what is the, is there a quote unquote ideal in the passage? So I wonder if, if, uh, if y'all were listening to that when you kind of thought of these questions, but yeah. So Tim, does this connect into some of the stuff we've been talking about with like Leviticus and God being this more like a nuclear reactor that Jesus then the purpose there was to make it so we could be in the presence of this nuclear reactor. Um, yeah. Does this kind of connect in with that? It does. Yeah. I think, and it'll be easy for us to see as we get into it, how it connects. Uh, I don't think it's too much of an overstatement to say, in terms of biblical literature and texts that all roads point back to Leviticus. Uh, And part of why we've done this whole series is I think Leviticus and the whole Levitical uh, content within the Torah is some of the most misunderstood of all the Bible. And so this will be another one where we kind of shine some new light on this. Uh, But first, why don't we just read the passage that's being referred to? Um, 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14 is the the main chunk, um, but I think what we'll do is, uh, is actually read down through 18, um, actually through 7-1, uh, which is kind of the full 
I think, the full breadth of the thought from Paul here. Okay, so here we go. Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, and God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. There it is. So, okay, Nate, I always like asking you this. What is your history with the whole, let's just forget the, the passage itself, but just the idea. Do not be equally yoked or do not be unequally yoked, um, which did you notice? Uh, that that word actually isn't in there, which you just read. Um, you did you read the NIV? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Right. Um, but it's interesting. We'll get into why that unequally. Yeah. Is there. Okay. I'll give you my. But I'll yeah. give you. I'll give you it real give quick. Me your here. So like, yeah. So it was always unequally yoked. So now I'm kind of seeing that in the NIV at least it's don't be yoked together with unbelievers. But that was it. It was it was um, on a kind of a more base basic level it was don't this is why this is sort of the commandment to marry a fellow christian if you're going to enter into marriage it should be with a fellow christian and it was pointed to often um i probably did this to uh to explain why some non-christians or some that one christian guy who married the non-christian woman why they have you know issues sometimes um and then there was also this other bit too. Okay, so, you know, this could also be used, I've heard this used before with people that are both Christians, but one is a more serious Christian and one is more of a casual Christian and that you're going to have issues there too because of the unequal, you're not equal. Um, and then there's even kind of this other one of like, if you're going to be a pastor or you're going to be this like leader person and you have those strong kind of giftings, then you need to marry someone with that in mind, someone who's not going to keep you from that. Um, you need to be equally yoked with another like pretty strong uh, leader type person. Um, otherwise you are, there's that unequality um, that's going to cause issues and problems because you're going to be held back from your gifts. So that's sort of the kind of three different levels that I've heard it in. Yeah. Eek. Uh, okay. So is it, uh, can you say it was just a, a, a rule? Was it established? It was just a rule that Christians can't marry non-Christians. I think it was, in my experience, it was just, it was extremely, extremely good advice. Um, so not this rule, or I don't even know if it was called sin necessarily, and I definitely wouldn't have called it that. But just, uh, well, if you do that, you know, here's your warning, and here's what that is potentially going to lead to is, you know, <laughs> bad things, essentially. As we say on the show, bad things. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. Okay, well, let's let's get into it. Um, I I not only I did two phases of homework here. One is the homework I love doing. I always do, and I've been doing for a long time. That's the Bible research, <laughs> and the other is the homework of 
what people are out there doing in the world uh, and how they're using or misusing or abusing passages like this one. And really, I was trying to figure out, like, how did this passage become that rule or something really close to a rule? Um, because what you'll see, and this is part of Anson's question, there's no even hint of marriage anywhere within this passage, right? Uh, it's not coming in the context of speaking of families or couples or men or women, like none of that. Um, and so I was sort of like, man, how has this been so solidified? And so I, I paid the price so you don't have to and went and checked out what both Desiring God and the Gospel Coalition uh, have historically done with this passage. And I realized there's one there's one key move that multiple people within those groups have done. And, and I also realized it's embedded in our Bibles and some of the modern translations is this same move which pairs this passage, 2 Corinthians 6, with another passage in 1 Corinthians 7 to, to basically make this passage be indirectly about marriage. So let me, let me show you this move, and then I think we need to talk about these articles that I found, um, and then I'll, I'm going to spend the rest of my life pretending I have never read them. Um, but the second passage, uh, and I want to see, I partly want to see if this rings a bell with you, Nate. Um, is 1 Corinthians 7, 39. So this one is about men, women, marriage, what people are supposed to do towards the other. That context is here. And why don't you read the NIV again? Sure, yeah, okay. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes but he must belong to the Lord. So what I saw in two John Piper articles was an interpretation, which we need to critique real quick, is right here in 1 Corinthians 7. It's being read as, so a woman is bound to be married to her husband, but if she becomes a widow, then she can marry anyone she wants and then the way, the way the NIV frames this is, quote, but he must belong to the Lord. So what John Piper is saying and others is right here is a rule that Christian widows can only marry Christian men. And then what they do is they connect this with 2 Corinthians 6 and the idea of being unequally yoked, and then they essentially read into that passage that that is an, another articulation of the same idea, that Christians need to n not be married to non-Christians. So one thing you'll notice is uh, I'm on Logos, but Nate, your uh, Bible computer probably has this as well. Do you see a little... Uh, notation after verse 39 in the NIV? Actually, no. Interesting. Yeah. So what are you reading on? Bible Gateway. There are notations after other verses um, within this Just section here. Yeah, but not after that one. So on, on Logos, and actually part of why I like the NIV on uh, Logos is it has more embedded links where anytime there's an allusion or quote to some other place 
it tries to give you a little um, a little notation to give you that reference point. And it just has a little notation here that just says 2 Corinthians 6.14. That's the don't be unequally yoked. And that, I found that, this little notation is, let's see, it's in the ESV, and I think it was in one other one, uh, at least that I found. Um, but okay, so that, first of all, let's just say that notation is obviously an interpretation of the text, right? There aren't, uh, this isn't a quotation. Paul's not quoting himself from the first letter. He's writing two different letters, saying two different things. And the interpreters have seen similarity between the two, right? But first, let me deconstruct this even further. Um, open the NASB, Nate, if you can, of 1 Corinthians 7.39, the one we just read. Okay. So for those of you out there, uh, I've suggested the NASB, if you're trying to look at a literal uh, reading to compare words and how they're used, is one of the, the best ones. And here's a good example of that. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Okay, so this is actually literally what the Greek says, only in the Lord, following this idea of she's free to be married to whomever she wants. So remember, there's no punctuation in Greek. This only it's unclear actually what it's relating to. It's not the, there's no verb there. The way the NIV translates it is very clearly an interpretation that what this only is referring to is who the, the woman or who female widows are allowed to marry. But it's actually not grammatically certain that that is what it means. It could, it could be. I'm, I'm not saying they're definitely wrong. But it's also quite possible that this only in the Lord is a reference to the woman's freedom to remarry or the freedom to remarry whoever she wants. That basically this is could possibly also be Paul's way of saying this kind of freedom doesn't exist out there in normal Greco-Roman culture. Uh, but within our people here, uh, a woman should have the right to marry whoever she wants. Okay, but Tim. Yes. Nate. I see what you're I see what you're saying, but I can also see how that would be said like, okay, but may, but it it could likely mean only, you know, make sure it's a Christian. And wouldn't that be decent advice? Like in the in the the uh Christianity that we're describing, like that that John Piper is talking about, isn't it actually good advice to find someone who probably agrees with what you're you know, you feel like is your life calling and your life life purpose. Like I could, I could see there being issues. So some of this kind of like makes sense to me a little bit. Possibly. And I, and I don't even need to uh, argue with uh, your John Piper's devil's advocate. Uh, but I mean, let me just read some quotes from this article. Just classic John Piper here. If you have felt need for companionship that is greater than your felt need for God, then you are sinning. If you are on a trajectory to fall in love with and marry a woman who is outside the Lord, you are on a trajectory to disobey God's word. 
Notice just the assumption that we're always talking to men here in articles like this. Marriage cannot be a deep union if two people have different supreme treasures, one Christ and another something in creation. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Uh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. Second article I found from Piper, which is in... Oh, actually, sorry. The second article on Desiring God, not written by Piper, but somebody named Sean Nolan. Let me be clear. To marry an unbeliever is to sin against God. And then 1 Corinthians seven thirty nine in quotations, as if that's the clear <laughs> reading of 1 Corinthians seven thirty nine, And then literally uses the word forbidden. Okay. So this is why I was asking you is like, was this a hard and fast rule? Uh, Because, you know, I think a lot of people out there know that John Piper's a joke and like shouldn't be taken seriously on a number of levels. But there are hundreds of thousands of people uh, that are listening to this guy all the time. So we've sort of used him as, you know, he's easy to poke fun of because he tweets crazy things. But it's also like his branch of Christianity is not extreme. Right. It's not small. It's not the rare thing. This is like a decent uh, slice. And then I, I, I agree. I agree with a lot of that. I guess what I'm saying is I think saying it's forbidden to marry a, a non-Christian wouldn't be just like a weird little John Piper thing. I think that's a pretty widely accepted idea within Christianity, for better or worse. I, I'm just saying I think that's not just like a little John Piperism where oh, it's John Piper saying yeah, right. something kind of off the wall again. No, it's a lot of people. I mean, that was I, that was pretty much every sector of uh, church that I ever experienced. But part of what I'm, I'm trying to poke at is like, um, what your devil's advocate was, was might, that, might not that actually be decent advice? Well, I'm saying maybe it is decent advice to some people in some scenarios, or maybe even to a lot of people. But that's very different than saying it's a rule and if you don't follow that advice, you are sinning against God, especially, and this is the part I wanted to just point out textually, when the way that people are getting there is by making one interpretive choice in 1 Corinthians 7.39 that isn't even the necessary choice. It's not the only option. It's one of multiple options. And then, bigger picture is what I keep seeing people do, is linking that, again, even the texts themselves have these little notations, at least some of the digital versions of, of modern Bibles have these little notations, linking them and so that so many of us grew up in Christianity or spent time in the church where we thought there was a rule that was Paul saying, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, period. That's a command from Paul, which means it's a command from God. And what that means is don't marry someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, right? And that's a rule. 
And if you break that rule, then you're sinning against God. So first, the, the holes I'm trying to poke in that right now are that that command might not even be there at all in 1 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 6, the whole unequally yoked thing, doesn't mention marriage whatsoever, and there's no justification for why we'd lump those two things together. Oh, sure. I, I mean, I've, I've heard 2 Corinthians 6, uh, the, the, as far as the unequally yoked, I've heard that in business context as well, not just in marriage. Right. So just to give credit, like I think, I think it is used beyond just the marriage context. Right, totally. But that's why I said the, I, I was wondering how do people get to this being in Anson's head and Christopher's head and my head as a marriage thing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> a marriage prohibition. And I'm seeing it's this linkage between these two different two different texts that, again, you could question on multiple things. But okay, let's get into like, what is Paul actually talking about? And then see how this connects to Leviticus and, and all that. So first, like, yoke. Are you like... This is like, uh, all my knowledge of this comes from the Oregon Trail. <laughs> Video game. <laughs> the game? Okay. Video but also game. you live yes. actually like, Two miles uh, off of the real Oregon Trail, so I do. In fact, um, just down the hill from where I live, you can see the interpretive center with the covered wagons, where you can go and learn about the uh, the Oregon Trail. I live in the city where the Oregon Trail finished. Uh, this is where they were going. Um, and uh, the, but the best part was in elementary school growing up. We once a year. I don't know if this was a nationwide thing that other people did, but at least in Oregon. What we would do is, and it was the coolest thing, but we got to, it was like a, for a month, we we got to pretend as if we were on the Oregon Trail. And we and each, in, in your class, you were split up into maybe, depending on the class size, three or four different, different wagons, um, different like family groups, essentially. And then there were different roles too, like there'd be uh, someone in the different... Um, cities that you'd come into where the forts were and they would be the one that would that would trade with you and so like there was this monetary system that we had of trading goods and there was some money involved and i mean fake money we're, we're in third grade here um and but yeah so it was all kept on you know ledgers and all this stuff and different people would get certain diseases and you had to have the correct medication it was so much fun it was way more fun than the video game the video game was always uh quite horrific probably like the real Oregon Trail, but the, the elementary school version of the Oregon Trail that we did, oh man, I have, that's like one of my favorite memories from elementary school was that game. It was so much fun. Okay. So okay, what were we talking based about? on all Yo, of that, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what okay, did the you Oregon know. Trail teach you about what a yoke is? Um, was the, it was the, the oxen. You had to have the oxen and you have them on both sides um, because they would have that wooden, uh, is it called a yoke? Uh, on their necks. It goes over the top and you tie it on the bottom and you put these two oxen together and you can have multiples of those, but they kind of come in, in twos. Um, but yeah, that's the idea. You have two oxen together. So I'm guessing if one oxen was like sickly and wasn't a good polar <laughs> that, and the other one was that you're going to have issues because that oxen's going to be like either drug behind or the faster one's going to get slowed down or something's not going to work there. Um, and there's the, there it is. There's the, there's the unequally yoked idea. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah, it's basically, uh, you know, you can look up in a Bible dictionary or something. It was, it's a piece of wood that connected to animals and allowed, uh, typically connected to animals, although I don't think that was required, but allowed them to pull something. Um, apparently, this is like a major, major technological advance. 
Um, apparently there's sort of two phases. I, I learned this in some of my homework. It's just interesting. Uh, but basically the first one was allowing animals to pull a plow, which totally changed agriculture and how much agricultural work could be accomplished by people, right? And essentially moved the burden of the physical labor from humans to, uh, to large livestock. Um, and then the second one, this is just fascinating, is there's kind of the second phase, which uh, one uh, dictionary entry I was reading uh, called it basically a, a horse yoke. Um, but they're basically talking about the technology of being able to pull wagons and chariots. And some scholars think essentially the entire Assyrian empire uh, was because they they mastered this technology of being able to to pull wagons with uh, with horses. Wow, um, which is just interesting. So so what you see is basically this is like important technology, both from the agrarian world uh, of the these old ancient texts, um, and and then also a part of this imperial world, right, of these texts where empires. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, these empires are making slaves out of Israel. And so this is a loaded word that is used throughout uh, the Hebrew Bible in various places because uh, it basically becomes this perfect uh, symbol. So it's sort of a symbol for slavery, bondage, burden, hardship. And one place we'll see it's like uh, sort of for like the burden specifically of of governance or leadership policies. There's a line in first Kings. It's talking about the yoke that Solomon put on Israel. Hmm. Um, and then what we'll see is there is this also this idea that two things are being yoked together. And, and it's this, the fact that two animals are being connected together uh, under the yoke, that that's the aspect being pointed to. So just a few examples uh, Exodus 6, 6, therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. So basically yoke means slavery, right? It's set right by side. I'm going to essentially, there's this metaphor of like taking you out of the yoke or even breaking the yoke in half is to be set free from from slavery. Some scholars think that there were cruel governments that actually put humans, human slaves in yokes, like actually made them wear uh, either iron or wooden yokes to force them mm. to pull things or even just to humiliate them. Wow. Uh, I don't know how reliable that idea is, but even if that weren't the, the case, you, you could see that the, the metaphor is taking the yoke used for animals and applying that metaphorically to people, right? Symbolically to, to people. Sure. Um, so in the Solomon example, first Kings 12, your father put a heavy yoke on us. Your, your father speaking to Rehoboam, whose dad was Solomon, uh, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us and we will serve you. Uh, one last one, numbers 25, three. So Israel yoked themselves to the ball of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them. So this is an interesting one. And there are elements of this, I think, get passed forward into the, the New Testament. We'll have to decide kind of when and where that happens. But this is sort of that like bonding thing. And there's this interesting theme. We'll have to save most of it. The context here in Numbers 25, which is actually something Paul references uh, in the New Testament, 
is the problem of sexual immorality with Moabite women and and eating food that was sacrificed to Moabite gods. And those two things, sexual immorality and and food used in idol worship, which happen to be two of the things that the New Testament says are off limits for Christians, the the problem with them, the way that it's it's articulated, uses the metaphor of what it what doing that does is yokes someone to Baal. It essentially links side by side uh, one of Yahweh's servants with one of Yahweh's enemies. So the the issue at hand is that sort of linking up thing, which it sounds like, Nate, you've got some in your church history, that was some of the element, right? Of like, don't... Um, don't be linked with, you know, the outsiders or, uh, as you mentioned, even in like business relationships. Sure. You're going to make different, when push comes to shove, you're going to make different business decisions than someone who isn't a Christian because your value system is, is completely different. Um, and that is why you wouldn't do that, I guess was the reasoning. And then a marriage, obviously, um, far more so in a relationship like that. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just, uh, it's interesting. There's even this bit in the sacrificial system a couple times where it, it calls for using cows that have never been yoked uh, in the offerings as if like the slavery itself was somehow defiling of the animal, um, which is interesting. But then you'll probably remember some of the where this comes up. There's the famous Matthew 11 line, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, which is beautiful, right? Drawing from this yeah. metaphor. Um, I've heard some people recently actually make the case, one of the Bible dictionaries I was reading sort of makes this claim that in the New Testament, the idea of a yoke was actually something that would help people remove a burden by like distributing the weight. Hmm. I don't, have you heard it? Have you heard this? No, but I mean, I kind of see that kind of makes sense a little bit. Yeah, to me, I mean, I, I think I get the idea. It's like, well, if you're carrying a, you know, carrying something or dragging something, and you didn't have any device, it'd be like a, like a weightlifting harness, right, or like a back brace, where it's like helping. Well, I was thinking of it like if I'm carrying this thing, and then we, can, you can yoke me together with someone else, and they're carrying it too. Now my burden is just relieved by 50% at least. And if we can yoke more. Oh, sure. Then... So the idea is like by being paired with someone yeah. else. Yeah, it's interesting. So one thing that's interesting in the in the Jesus line is it's unclear whether in the picture like Jesus is next to you, right? And then so you're he's on mm. one side and you're on the other. Or if like Jesus is the thing you're pulling um, or if like, you know what I mean? It's totally different than that because in some way... Like, oh yeah, like if his rules and his laws are... Um, and his way of life is that the thing that's you're the burden and right? it's easy? yeah because that right I guess that's how that's how I always heard it mm-hmm. yeah which is kind of how it comes off because it's it's my burden is light right so mm-hmm. like the the thing that you're pulling like that's the thing that's adding uh, burden I don't you, everyone can sort of discern that for themselves but to me the idea is like eat I, I don't get really get the it's a positive thing like the slavery connotation is still there Paul uses it twice in Galatians and first Timothy of speaks of the yoke of slavery and he's speaking of like real human slavery. Um, like even if the yoke itself is somehow helping you out or you're 
neighbor in the yoke is helping you out, like you are still being made to pull <laughs> something that animals should be pulling, right? Like it's, I don't see how the connotation isn't one of burden, slavery, that sort of thing. And even here, mm. I think there's sort of an interpretive question, probably a really important one about like who or what is Jesus comparing his yoke to, right? Like what is the alternative burden? Um, and we're not going to get into that. Um, but basically just see, like even through the New Testament, this is a, a common theme. But, okay, let's back up to something we've actually touched on before. Do you remember, Nate, when we talked about two passages in the Torah that talked about rules relating to mixing and things that should and should not be mixed. Yes. I'm trying to remember what those things that you weren't, was blood one of them? Well, there are a lot of specific rules about not touching blood and keeping separate from blood, but. Oh, yeast, something about. Yeast is there too. Yeah. Which is. One I've wanted to get into in the New Testament stuff. It's the whole football and synthetic clothing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Two different types of materials or, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think we briefly touched on, but never got into something that I think is fascinating and has a bunch of different fascinating uh, rabbit trails running off of it, which is you have one version of these three, uh, prohibitions about mixing in Leviticus 19.19. And then you have an all very similar but alternative list in Deuteronomy 22.10, in Deuteronomy 22.9 through 11. So, okay, Leviticus 19.19. Do not mate different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. And do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. And do you remember, I was making the case that the whole underlying logic here is the, the chemical uh, ideas associated with mixture. And so what would happen if you mixed a holy animal? That was the argument. It was the two kinds was a, a holy and an un, unholy or, or profane normal animal. Um, same with the kinds of seed. The, the point was to keep the holy thing separated from the non-holy, uh, to keep the clean from the unclean. And so the point of the prohibitions was to not mix two different categories of things. We think kinds, right? And so that's why we've had this idea of like, you can't mix, you know, wool and synthetic whatever, cotton. Um, but I think there's this other idea playing uh, here of, of purity principles, basically that you can't, you shouldn't be mixing the priestly holy things and the, the people's profane things. Um, but, and it also has to do with like the way when you mix things, what kinds of things are produced. Right. And we talked about like if a tree grew in from the priest's field into everybody else's field, like did the tree become holy or what happened to the roots, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But then, so you look at Deuteronomy 22 and it does have, do not wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. So there it is actually two different materials, right? Not just holy and unclean, but two different materials. And it has the, do not plant two kinds of seed in your vineyard. And then this is specific. This was the one we looked at. The, the Bible text, NIV, 
the translation says, if you do not only the crops you plant, but also the fruit of the vineyard will be defiled. This is the one where I pointed out that the word is actually consecrated, right? Where they just uh, swap. It's like the opposite. Yeah, exactly. But then in the middle there, it's do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. So this, to me, this is the most fascinating is this is a, a alternative to the Leviticus one where in Leviticus, it's breeding two different kinds of animals. That's the idea. In Deuteronomy, it's yoking two different kinds of animals together, specifically mentions an ox and a donkey. And I think what's happening is in Leviticus, pretty typical of Leviticus, it's very much centered on this theme of like cultic purity and what happens when you mix different kinds of substances. And in Deuteronomy, what this is more going with much of uh, the Deuteronomy righteousness and justice, you do good and good will happen, you do bad and bad will happen. It's more of a justice-oriented rule where essentially you shouldn't mix a really, or you shouldn't yoke together a really strong large animal with a small not-so-strong animal out of concern for the small animal. Oh, so where you're going with this is that this don't be unequally yoked or however it's talked about there in second Corinthians is getting to a, a holy and defiled type of thing, not a Christian or non-Christian. Uh, no, I'm actually not. Um, you know, the, so the word for one who does not believe a pistos, uh, a, a belief, um, is, is the word that gets translated unbelievers. Um, that's, that's there. There's a distinction happening between people who believe and, or people with faith and people without faith. Um, and the reason mentioned the NIV just says, do not be yoked together. But the reason so many of us have in our heads, do not be unequally yoked is I think Paul essentially creates a compound word out of a word that pretty much means sort of, uh, unbalanced or, um, or other with the word for yoked. And, and essentially that's why uh, unequally yoked is almost like a more literal translation on some of the um, English translations. I think what he's doing is he's making it clear that he's alluding to the Deuteronomy 22 passage and the whole principle underlying the Deuteronomy 22 passage. Um, but this is where, to me, this opens up uh, at least a new way of thinking about it. And I think there are a couple new ways we can think about it. So, so again, to, to you, Nate, reading, okay, so if, if Deuteronomy is specifically changed where it isn't about chemical mixtures, uh, we've, we've tweaked the chemical mixture thing, and instead we've, we've adapted or created a new rule, which is about not yoking a really big, strong animal within the same harness, right? Right. That's going to be going at the same speed as a, as a small little animal. Like what's the basic um, concern or emotional thrust of that prohibition? It's protection of the weaker, smaller, um, slower animal. Right. And I think literally the idea is, and, and I think that some people have picked up on this, although I've seen some sort of silly ways of articulating it. Uh, one of the Gospel Coalition articles I saw, I think made the claim that 
when two things, when a strong thing and a weak thing are, are yoked together, it spins around in circles and doesn't produce much. And I'm like, I, I think the point is, uh, the ox is going to be moving. And if, and if this poor donkey is essentially strapped into, uh, this incredibly heavy load alongside an incredibly strong animal, the thing is going to get dragged through the mud to its death or potentially to just great struggle and harm. So it seems like, interestingly, the Deuteronomy 22 passage is out of sympathy for donkeys <laughs> or as this is like a case law bit that's like this would be the kind of action that is either practically or maybe more symbolically unjust to certain kinds of animals, right? This would be a, a kind of an unjust practice. Um, but specifically, I think it is unjust towards the donkey. And so the first thing to me that at least should just, I would appreciate if just the tone changed around the whole question of dating and marriage and Christians and non-Christians and all that is, okay, first we said, it's not clear whether the unequally yoked thing in Paul's mind is specifically referring to marriage, okay? That's sort of a, a construct, I think, of connecting it with that other passage and the other letter to the Corinthians. But if for a moment we were to pretend that it is or imagine that it is, or that maybe marriage was one form of the ways, one form of how someone could be yoked to another person, then the concern isn't for the, the well-being of the Christian, I think that's the important thing here. The concern is for the well-being of the non-Christian, the a-believer. And, and here's, you can see more evidence of this. There's this whole theme. I've This was one of my favorite parts of sort of late research on the Leviticus stuff, which we may or may not ever get to. But there's this whole playing with the calendar of the uh, Jewish holidays in the Hebrew Bible that's happening in the Gospels, and then Paul's picking up on it where essentially the, the, there's a sort of metaphorical analogy that's saying the time of year that it is, both when Jesus is there, but then the time of sort of world history that is happening after Jesus, is, Jesus leaves and the church is filled with spirit is the season of harvesting. So you might remember like all the parables about harvesting or the line that the the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Right. And Paul uses just an abundance of gardening and harvest metaphors uh, in his writings. Essentially, there's this, there's this big framework, this thematic framework in the New Testament that Christians empowered with God's spirit are like agricultural workers setting out to plow and harvest a field. Right. Okay. And we can dissect that later if we want to. But it's very clear that, and Paul actually in other places refers to himself as an ox and points back to Deuteronomy. So it's pretty clear that what he has in his head is when someone follows Jesus and receives the Spirit, they are taking on a yoke, right? It's back to whatever, however, we're supposed to think about that uh, Jesus quote, you know, take my yoke upon you. They're, they are getting yoked up to go out into the fields and work. And the first, if if Paul has this Deuteronomy passage in his mind, which I think it's obvious that he does, and he's trying to get us to see that he does, 
But then the bigger question, if he's thinking about marriage, if he, were to, if he were to have this passage in his mind and think about marriage, then his sympathies dictated by this passage in Deuteronomy would not be for, for a Christian who's going to like burden themselves with a non-believer. The basic concern would be, are you going to be dragging this person who doesn't, doesn't feel the kind of zealous crazy uh, religious passion that is going to lead to a, a lot of behaviors and actions, they don't hold those same beliefs. They're not going to want to do the same things with their life that you are. Are you going to be dragging them through the mud? Okay, but I mean, ultimately it is still saying, whether it's a mandate or not a mandate, it's still saying you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't get married to an unbeliever, right? Isn't, uh, you know, the large swaths of Christianity that over the course of, I don't know how long, have believed that. Aren't they right in thinking that, you know, you shouldn't, whether it's a mandate or not, like you shouldn't marry an unbeliever, even if it's for protection of the other person. Maybe that's, maybe that needs to be included in order to make this a little bit clearer though. But like, aren't they still right? Well, so that's where I think, you know, you and I uh, have no business giving dating or marriage advice to anybody, especially over a podcast. Um, and, and that's not the point of this conversation. I sort of want to, uh, expand <laughs> these oversimplified conversations where it's just, this is forbidden. Here is the rule. Um, but you play devil's advocate and you said, is, isn't that maybe good advice? So here's the thing. Paul refers to himself as an ox in the field. And actually we'll touch about on that real quick as it relates to tithing at the end. Um, and Paul went crazy, right? Like Paul literally... Remember the story, he gets beat up on his way into town, like within an inch of his life, and then gets back up and starts to try to walk back into town. Like he he lived an extreme religious life. Right. And he's saying, don't bring, don't drag someone else into that. Right. Mm -hmm. But like, he's still saying that that's noble to do that. And that's the, that's the better way. That's the better direction. In fact, he, he would say it's better not to get married so you can go live this zealous life, right? Uh, right. So I'm not, I'm not claiming that Paul is like anti-evangelist, right? Like he wants people to believe. That's why he lives such a crazy life. But my, my point, so first point is, um, is that still how we think of Christianity 2,000 years later, right? In our time with Francis Chan, the idea is like, well, everything that's wrong with the church is because we don't think about Christianity like that, right? And we do just need to you know, give up everything in our lives and, and go do the hardest thing we can for Jesus. In which case, it would probably be a good conversation to have of like, does somebody else who doesn't even think that these ideas are valid really want to live a life with me, right? And we don't need a religious rule for that. Like that, that's just part of it. Wouldn't that be part of a normal conversation, right? Yeah. About exactly. a relationship. Um, and so that's the part, like I saw one of the articles I read on Gospel Coalition was from Kathy Keller. Uh, conservative wife of uh, famous Tim Keller. And uh, part of it was basically sort of saying that, where it's like, she the way she framed it was there basically a few possible outcomes. And one outcome is that you're going to be so religiously uh, devoted that you're going to end up neglecting your spouse. Or the other is you're going to be so devoted to your spouse that you end up neglecting your God, your religion, essentially. And, and so because of that, 
what she does, she says, well, it's essentially just there's this obvious rule. And she tells a story of raising her son where that was just a rule that you can only marry a Christian. And then you get into the weird world of like dating in order to convert people and just like a world I, I don't want to go there. And I'm not comfortable with it at evangel all. Dating. Yeah. <laughs> evangel yeah. dating. But you, you were never in Bible college, but yeah, it's evangel dating. Right. So where I could at least track with her is like, that's probably true, right? Like, do you want to be married to John Piper if you're not a Christian? For a thousand reasons, no, right? But one of them, <laughs> one of them will just be because John Piper has devoted every part of his life to uh, espousing this faith, including like, for instance, in some of these articles, the idea is, and there's this other one, just for record's sake, so you know I'm not making this stuff up, Gospel Coalition article from 2012 by someone named Sarah Flashing, honoring God in an unequally yoked marriage. She writes an article, puts it on the internet about how her daily devotion and her life commitment is to just finally one day successfully convert her husband of decades, right? All she wants to do, what it means to love her husband is to to someday win his soul to Jesus, right? Like, do you really want to be married to someone? Like, if you don't believe <laughs> in this, right, do you really want to be married to someone who's going to try to convert you for the next 40 years of your life? Like, that that's a fair question, right? Um, and probably a good question that people uh, should have. Uh, here's the thing, though. I've sensed that actually, even though I don't think people have any idea, many people, what purity actually meant, purity and defilement meant in the original context of Leviticus, I think that what happens is is purity and the protection of one's purity, whether that's moral purity, religious purity, whatever, that is actually the lens that we read the unequally yoked line through um, in a sense that we are supposed to protect ourselves from being influenced by others. I saw this in some of these articles too. Um, and uh, like basically guard against contact with hmm. with other people. So to me, I just think it, if we understand this, and I think there's good evidence to, um, as like a an empathy-driven thing, like why would I want to drag someone through the mud living a life that they don't want to live, right? right? Like uh, it could at least make for a much more humane conversation. And part of the evidence where I say like why that's a, a justified reading. So ironically, um, pairing the unequally yoked thing was with first Corinthians seven is I think how this has sort of been known as a, a marriage related verse. Um, but there's interestingly another part of first uh, Corinthians seven that I think is sort of clarifying where it's talking about marriage, sort of this long talk about if people are, if you're married to somebody and, and they don't believe, right. They are an a believer. Um, Verse 12, it says, to the rest I say this, and this is one of the interesting parts where Paul says, I, not the Lord. Um, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Oh, the, if they're willing. Yeah. Yeah. So that word is basically, um, it's like if, they're, if they agree, it's like if they approve of this. And so just think about the way it's, it's framed in both things. It's not if, if you, Christian, are willing to stay with your, you know, impure outsider spouse, it's the idea of like, are they willing to put up with you? The assumption is you are going to be committed to a, a life of labor, 
that the other person is uninterested in, not passionate about, doesn't even necessarily agree with. So out of sympathy for them, make sure they are willing to live with you in that, right? Both going into it and then while you're in it. So I I think that's, at least to me, a better way of framing the discussion. Again, if you're out there dating, and I know one of the people who wrote in, that was that's the question. It's like, I'm dating someone who's amazing and they're atheist. And I'm on this faith journey with Jesus. And like, is this a rule? Should I not break the, you know what I mean? Like, and figuring that out, I just think about this. And to me, part of the the added context of this already very complex conversation is, is the version of Christianity that we are actually living today, like, is it as much like, yoking to for for an atheist in America today and a Christian in, in America today is it really like yoking an an ox and a donkey right <laughs> in Paul and I think in Paul's head the the difference was so vast you know it's like an apple and an orange right now we need to have that conversation of like should the should the difference be so vast because I think we would have in the past said yeah it, it needs to be it needs to be like so awkwardly different to where it would be so awkward to be yoked to someone. And and now I'm saying like, I don't know, I feel like my advice to that person would be like, just use, you know, use your head, think about it. Like use logic, use your heart, use your head and think like, is the way I make decisions and the way I process information um, so vastly different from this other person? Or can we do that together? Um, because deep down we really want the same types of things largely want the same types of things in the world and in our lives right and i you and i spent so much of time in the world where it's like it should be so different we should be so radical right i i just want people to ask like would it be like just think practically realistically not like what you should be doing but who are you what kind of life are you going to live and then have a good honest conversation about that right so okay so here's the other thing related to what like some of where i want to push back the next line after paul just says that you know if your wife not a believer. She's willing to stay with you. Don't divorce her. If your husband's willing to stay with you, don't divorce him. The next line, 1 Corinthians seven fourteen, For the not believing husband has been sanctified. That's the word made holy, consecrated, by his wife. And the not believing wife has been sanctified by her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. This is another one of my favorite verses the church has just decided to ignore or make up sort of silly interpretations of for a long time because we haven't known how to make sense of this. This is right back into the world of if you mix two substances and one of them is holy enough, it has the power to actually make the whole batch of dough holy. If you mix a little bit of holy dough that belongs to the priests into uh, the rest of the dough, it can make, you know, the whole thing holy. Or what happened with uh, Aaron, the high priest back in Leviticus? Uh, I can't remember if we touched on this or not. So Aaron would go into the tent to to get uh, ready to perform his services to uh, to provide an offering that covered with blood for all of the people so that all of Israel would be uh, made holy in some small sense. But first, what he had to do was use a separate animal with separate blood for himself. But when he did that, the text says multiple times in Leviticus 16, Aaron atoned for himself and his household all in one place. 
So this is the idea that actually, and this uh, to me, there's like no bigger pushback possible to, to this other, it's like a pendulum swing in a pretty strong way. The idea is <laughs> the, the family of one Christian person has been cleansed and sanctified, which in other places is just the word saved, just by their contact within the same household, the same vessel, the same container as that one Christian person, right? So think about it. You've got one, one part of Paul where people are interpreting as saying like, don't be defiled by these other impure outside people that aren't believers, right? And yet here, Paul's talking about mixed marriages between people that believe and don't believe. And his belief is that the, his belief is that one Christian in in an entire family actually saves the entire family. (laughs) You go down two verses. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So I've read a litany of ways people try to explain why this is not one Christian vicariously saving their household. I actually think that's exactly what this is because it's just following right in line with the same logic of purity that we've explored in all the past Mm. episodes. So again, that's just another huge pushback of like in terms of how we're going to frame this conversation and what Paul's doing and how he's bringing Leviticus He's bringing the the purity mixture part of Leviticus in to say that actually holiness is spreading over people that don't even care about Jesus. And then he's bringing the Deuteronomy justice-oriented part in out of empathy for those same non-Christian people out of concern that they wouldn't get dragged through the mud and forced to live some life they don't want to live. So that, to me at least, gives us a lot of context and hopefully um, fodder to have a a more empathetic, um, what's another word, like emotionally honest and sensitive conversation when we're talking about who you should date and how you should date and whether you should be, you know what I mean? Like all yeah. that conversation. Yeah, no, I mean, it seems like it comes back to what we talk about all the time. You got to use your head and your heart and logic and, you know, take in information and not, there's not this hard, fast rule. Um, things would be a lot easier maybe if there were hard, fast rules, but it's not the way it all works. All right. Thanks for spending some time with us today. We will see you next time. Okay. I, I said we we're going to get something and clearly we're out of time. So I'm going to, going to have to tease it, but remind next conversation or maybe utterly heretical something we got to talk about how Paul, actually you and I have talked about this off mics, how Paul intentionally refers to himself as an ox in the set of metaphors instead of a priest uh, because he's so scared mm. that, that using the metaphor of, of apostles as priests would create a hierarchical structure in the church. And he's so devoted to egalitarian power structures that he refers to himself an ox, as an ox. Okay, Interesting. that's a little tease. Okay, we'll get Let's there. get into that next time. Sounds good. Okay, thanks for being with us, y'all. Bye.